Welcome in. It's the BCJ Podcast on BearcatJournal.com. I'm Chad Brendel, and we have a big, big show for you today. A very special guest joining us here in a moment as we take the bye week in football and use it as an opportunity to get some basketball talk in. We are officially two weeks away from the start of the regular season and the start of the John Brandon era so here in a second, I will be joined by none other than one of the voices of the Bearcats on radio. That is my man, Terry Nelson, as he will uh, he will give us some insight on what he is seeing from the basketball team as we get ready to begin the season. But first, I want to thank everybody for your performance and what you have shown by showing up at our Taft's Brewporium Brew Parties. Uh, watch parties for the Bearcats games, uh, for the away games. We will have our next one coming up November 2nd, 7 p.m. kickoff as the Bearcats take on East Carolina. And let me tell you, Tafts has outdone themselves. They had a special through the first four or the first three road games that consisted of every time the Bearcats scored, you get a half, you get half price pints until the Bearcats got the ball back. Well, they've completely flipped that special on its ear. Now, every time the Bear, well, as soon as the Bearcats score a touchdown, as soon as the Bearcats score a touchdown, half price pints, that is $3 pints for the remainder of the game. So they punch it in on the first drive, you get half price pints for the rest of the night, for the rest of the football game. That is unbelievable. They have gone out of our out of their way to take care of UC fans because you guys have been so awesome at the Taft's Brewporium watch parties so far this season. All right, and with that said, it is time to get to our special guest for today. Basketball season is exactly two weeks away as the Cincinnati Bearcats get ready to travel to Ohio State to take on the Buckeyes in the first game of the John Brandon era, and who better to join us today than a former Bearcat, a Bearcat that has played in the Final Four, a Bearcat that now gets to sit by Hall of Famer Dan Horde and broadcast games on the radio. That sounds good. Hall of Famer Dan Horde rolls off the tongue. It does. Yes. We are joined by none other than my guy, Terry Nelson. Terry, welcome in, my friend. It is good to have you finally on the BCJ Podcast. Chad, I appreciate it, brother. I, I look forward to it. All right. Well, before we get, we got a lot to get to with uh, with John Brandon's first team, but but I want to get to uh, some Terry Nelson talk first. Give me the inside scoop, Terry. How did you end up from California in Cincinnati, and and, and what was the story behind you becoming a Bearcat? Wow. Well, most people know my story. I went to high school with Snoop Dogg and Cameron Diaz. Yeah, that's a, that's a good <laughs> place to several, start. Yeah, yeah, several <laughs> different players. Uh, I played high school football as well. And several different players on my team went pro. And I ended up signing out of high school with Cal State Fullerton. And under uh, George McCorn, and he was the coach, and they did an underground study, school newspaper of all places, did a study on graduation rates of athletes, and it came out, the numbers were bad. So the <laughs> president walked into the gym with that newspaper in hand and said, this is despicable. 
you've got five seniors. You better graduate four of them or you better look for another job. He resigned the next day. (laughs) (laughs) So so I end up at – I left. The the assistant coach there, Donnie Daniels, who is uh, coaching now, assistant coaching at uh, Gonzaga, he's a lifer. And he said, hey, man, if you're going to leave, why don't you go be with my friend over at L.A. Harbor? That's where Pete Rose went to junior college. And so we go to L.A. Harbor, and then we end up with the most school wins in school history. We end up on 23 and 11. We lost in the second round to Corey Blunt and his uh, Rancho squad. And so I said, you know what? I have one more year at JUCO. I'm going to probably go back to Long Beach and uh, hang out with my guys in Long Beach and play with them. We had a really, really stacked team. And then so Eric Martin decided to leave TCU. He joined Corey Blunt at Rancho, uh, Santa Ana College. And so summertime, we must have played each other five or six times. And we just had a good vibe with each other, Eric and Corey, hanging out with those guys, talking. And, you know, we kind of struck up a relationship. And when it came to time to get go on some visits, Corey and I decided to take trips together. Eric wasn't so sure what he wanted to do. So Corey and I, our first trip was to the Cincinnati. And I just, I loved it. It was just something about it. I was just tired of the gang culture. I was tired of the gun violence. I was tired of all the stuff, the overpriced. I was a country boy. I just wanted to fish, cut grass, be simple. And so Corey says, man, I'm going to Tennessee uh, and Utah. You know, I said, well, I think I'm a sign. He goes, man, you haven't even been anywhere else. I said, well, I already took that that route out of high school. I've been around the block. I know what I want. He said, you should at least take your other trips. I said, well, I'm going to take a trip to Hawaii. <laughs> that was, of course. That was, my, yeah, that, was my, that was my second trip to Hawaii. And he knew it, too. He was like, you know what, I know you're not going to sign here. But, you know, I, I'm thinking that we, you know, we can capture the spirit and get you coming. But I didn't want to be the best player on a bad team. Right. And so I ended up signing. And Corey took a couple more trips. He committed after I committed, and then we started working on Eric Martin. And then once we worked on Eric Martin and got him on board, he was like, man, what are you talking about? How did you guys, what did you guys see? I said, you just need to take a trip. Go down there. I'm telling you, you'll you'll love it. And if we all go down there, we got a chance to go to the Final Four. We were the three best players in California at the time. I said, if we all go here, we're we're going to the Final Four. And so when Eric actually signed, it was it was amazing because now you had the three best players in California all going to the same university, and people were like, how'd they get those guys? And it was Steve Moeller. You know, he was a master recruiter, and he came and, uh, and, and really laid the table out of what it is our expectations were. And I just really enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed just coming on the trip, being around the people, and I loved Bob Huggins. He was just natural. He had this mafioso type personality where, you know, if you ever been to uh, Hugs house and you ever seen any of his, uh, well, back then they had VHSs, his, whatever his collection was, it was about 30 VHS tapes and tapes. And they were all mafia movies. <laughs> That's not surprising. Yeah. That, he was, he's swarming down. He was part of the mob, right? <laughs> so so he, it was the same 
I was just going to say, true or false, they told you there was a beach here, and they took you to the beach water park. I've heard this story many times. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so Steve Moeller, I said, you know, Steve said, look, we, we're, getting, we're getting condos, because I was talking about all the other places they got um, apartments and different right. things for their athletes. And Steve said, oh, well, we're getting a condo. We're getting condos on the beach for our athletes. <laughs> I was like, Really? He said, yeah, we're going to get condos on the beach. And so me not even thinking, I'm from Long Beach, me not even thinking, show me the beach. <laughs> I'm like, man, that's amazing. Like he showed me the river. <laughs> and I didn't even think, I didn't even think anything about show me the beach. And so we actually went, we took, so when we got down here, first thing we said, because we heard all these stories about how these colleges are paying athletes. So we all thought that we was going to get broke off something, you know, at least a great deal on something. So the first thing we did when we got down here, we started, we went to, uh, we went car shopping. So they took us to, uh, we were in Beachmont. No, not in Beachmont. We were somewhere in Northern Kentucky. It was a Jeff Weiler dealership. And so we're, we're, we're driving around these cars. We're test driving these cars. I'm like, man, we're going to get some, we're going to get some fly cars. So Corey gets this, this Cadillac Fleetwood, this thing was about 12 feet long, man. It was a <laughs> it was a torpedo, right? So he's driving this thing around. He's like, yeah, I think I'm going to get this. And Eric is driving this little Fiero. And Eric taking off. We're all test driving our cars. And I'm driving, uh, uh, what is it? A, uh, gosh, it was a, a, a Pontiac something. I forgot what it was. And it was nice. It was a Super Sport SS. That's what it was. And it was fast and it was black. And I'm like, oh, I definitely want this. So my my uh, my, my trip lasted, my, my test ride was maybe 15 or so minutes. Corey was about 15 or so minutes. And we're sitting over there like, where in the heck is Eric? Eric's test ride was an hour. <laughs> Eric comes back. He's got fast food in the front seat. He's like, He's eating. I'm like, man, where'd you go? He goes, man, I have to make sure that it, it can get up and down on the highway. So he drove like 20 miles on the freeway, <laughs> stopped, got something to eat, and then drove 20 miles back to come back. Yeah, I want this car. So we're sitting over there thinking that, you know, this is going to be an awesome experience. We filled out the application. A week go by, nothing. Two weeks go by, nothing. Before you know it, a month goes by. We still don't have a car. They just took us on a little test ride to keep us pacified because they told us, you know, they, they were going to do that, but they had no intention of getting us cars. <laughs> Two lies, man. Uh, that, that sums up <laughs> Cincinnati, doesn't it? <laughs> you, 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 we think you think you're going to get a car. We're just going to let you drive it. I'm thinking I'm going to get a car. I'm in a, still in a waiting condo on the by the beach. The beach. Yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. We could we could probably Whatever tell stories. We could we could sit here and tell stories the whole time. But the people want to hear about the Bearcats. So yes. maybe uh maybe we'll we'll have you back on in the off season and we'll just spend an hour telling stories. Because I'm sure you got a right. million of them. Yes. So it's been uh a little over six months now since uh Mick Cronin surprisingly took the UCLA job and Mike Bone went out and hired John Brand. Was it surprisingly? Uh, not really, no. To, to some. To some, it was surprisingly. Uh, I, I, I haven't told this story before, Terry. So, 
we're at the uh, the NCAA tournament, and one of the 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 sites on twenty four seven in the network was the Virginia Tech site was swearing up and down. Mick Cronin to Virginia Tech is a done deal, done deal, done deal, mm-hmm. done deal. So I'm joking with Mick about it. And I said, oh, it's already done. Like, you're locked, signed, sealed, delivered, $4.5 million a year. You're going to Virginia Tech for the next five years. He looks at me. He smiles. He leans in, and he goes, think west, Chad. Think west. And then he walked away. You said think left? West. 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 Yes, yes, yes. West. And that was my – once things started getting hairy, I, my brain kept going back to that conversation. Think West. It was like, man, he might actually do this. Sure enough, he did. Mike Bohm went out, hired John Brandon from Northern Kentucky University. The, uh, the, the style of basketball is going to be different. The way practices yeah. run is different. We will get into that here in a minute. Uh, but from, from someone that is, is very close to the program, you're on the radio team, You've been around. What is your overall impression of what you've seen from the first six months of the John Brandon era as we sit now two weeks away from his first game? Well, let me start by saying I appreciate everything that Mick has done for me personally, asking me to take over uh, television 10 years ago. So I I really enjoyed that. Was it 10 years ago? I think about 10 years ago he asked me to take over and be the TV guy. And then that spawned into me being radio guy. So he's done a lot for other people as well as me. But these last six months, John Brennan is amazing. His whole terminology, uh, how he directs his practices, how he communicates with his players directly, how he gets across what he wants and he doesn't settle, doesn't have to scream and yell and raise his voice doesn't have to go into tirades for five or ten minutes, doesn't have to be the BMOC. Um, All he says is, this is what I want, and we're going to do it. And if if you're not going to do it, we're going to run. So it's not like one of those things we're going to run all day, and then while you're running, I'm going to tell you everything and call you every name except the name on your birth certificate. It's not that kind of John. (laughs) John is down and back in 11 seconds. Get back to what I want you to do. I can make you run all day, but we still have to play, and we still have stuff to do. So when I see him teach, when I see how um, very pointed and, and direct with his communication, but when I see how prepared he is and his different like – you've been around him, the different terminology in the stats. Like Nick would keep a, a board on the wall – and they would have something to do with turnovers and deflections, and that was his thing. So every time somebody gets a deflection, they're calling out, that was me, that was me, I got deflection. Well, he doesn't care about that. He's looking at assist to turnover ratio. He's looking at how many assists you had um, on defensive possessions. How many times, percentage-wise, were you in the right spot? Not that you make the play. How many times were you in the right spot, meaning that the whole floor is broken down into certain boxes. Were you in the right box? Was your foot in this box? Now, in the free throw line, it could be 10 different boxes in the free throw line. Three-point line, it could be 30 different boxes. But they track percentage-wise 
your position defensively where the ball is in relation to where your man is. So if you are and says, Keith's out of position, you know, Keith will start shaking his head because he hasn't heard that. It's a whole different system, a whole different frame of mind. Remember, you know, Cronin had the matchup Neba-type defense where it was totally different. The wings were uh, flipped where they weren't even looking at what was going on on the baseline. They were just watching each other, and the guards sometimes were turned around. So it was a, a unique system that nobody else in the country deployed. Got it from, you know, Robert Willard, I believe. He was yeah. at, uh, assistant coach at, at Louisville. But it was different. So now pulling out 13 years' worth of information and systems, four years in some players, taking out those habits and trying to instill new habits is his toughest challenge, trying to crack that, that mentality. But when you come in there and watch, Alex Meacham, myself, James White, DeMar Johnson, we all go to a practice one day, one of the early practices, and I'm sitting there listening to James White, and James is like got his arms folded, sitting up on the chair against the wall, and he's like, man, I wish I had this when I was playing. Like, it was, it was so fast-paced. It was so many shooting drills. It was so many full-court defensive drills where you are picking up full-court, you're sliding, you get a steal, you get a chance to get a dunk or kick it out for a three, constant moving. The offense was constant in motion. You're not standing still. If you are a guard, you are back-cutting, you are relocating, you are moving. If you're big, you're setting on the ball screens, you're diving to the hole, you're constantly in motion. The ball is hopping from one side to the other. Guys are he, – he's got so many shooters now. I mean, last year, Mick had a bunch of sports on that team. That team coming back probably would have been the top 15, 20 team based on Mick's style and knowing how Mick is in the league and how he is in tournament play and all that stuff. He's a tremendous tournament coach. But this style, Brandon is also a tremendous coach. But it's just totally different. So now the defense extends from half court all the way to full court. And it's several different man-to-man presses. He'll rarely go back and play zone defensively. He wants man-to-man, a lot of running and jumping, a lot of uh, unexpected spontaneous blitzes, as they would call them. Uh, he likes to call it 40 minutes both ways. And I'm like, no, we're going to have to call it like organized confusion or something. Like, we got to have a solid name. Everything's in a name. But when you watch him coach, and this is something that was um, the first time it happened, I looked at DeMar Johnson and I said, did you just see what I saw? And he shook his head. One of the assistant coaches, we were sitting down, and Jason, Jason Gee, assistant coach G, blew the whistle, stopped practice, and started coaching the big man. And like laying out to him, no, you're not getting, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. So John's listening, and then John goes, "All right, you ready? Let's go!" Blew the whistle. Thirty seconds later, uh, Sean Dwyer, assistant coach, blows the whistle, and he stops practice, and he says, "Nope, he didn't make the right rotation." And then he said, and he starts explaining it to him. And I looked at him and I said, "Do you know? In thirteen years, in thirteen years." Uh, Larry Davis is the only coach that had the power to say something in practice. Yeah, 13 and, and, years. I think that's really interesting, Terry, because I think it goes to 
something that John has said that I think people have glossed over. When John was talking about the staff that he hired, he said, I didn't want to have to take a bunch of time coaching my coaches on my system. Yep. And because he's got Jason G, who was the first head coach to ever hire John Brandon. I know we've talked about that in the past, but he gave John his first job. And then Dwyer and Tim Morris were both with him, both at Alabama and at Northern Kentucky. Uh, those guys understand, and they it, he didn't want to take a lot of time in the summer having to teach his coaches because he expects them to do that in practice. That's right. And, and that was key. Yeah. He doesn't want to have never, to be the one in charge of looking. If you're going to be that as detailed as he is, like you talked about, you got to be in this box. You got to be here. You, one person can't watch 10 guys do that. That's right. And he needs and those you know, guys. They all have their responsibility. To mix credit, he is so good at being able to see what you like to do and devise a scheme defensively to take you out of that. Yeah. Now, if they're hitting shots. It looks really, really good, and it's really good to win on the road. I mean, he has he, he restored Cincinnati basketball. He put us back on the map. Tournament time, uh, conference tournament time was always fun. Not so much an NCAA tournament, three different seasons. But the, 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 the detriment to him or his downfall was the underutilization of his staff. He did not listen to his staff as much as he should have. He did not take their input during time and during game time. Like they would come up with the game plan and it'd be a masterful game plan. But sometimes that game plan gets rocked and it's not working. And you gotta be able to move on the fly. So any coach who's giving um, input on what it is they should do, he would immediately cut them off and tell them, I got this. You don't worry about that. I got this. And so it would rub people the wrong way to see how he would react to his coaches, how he would yell at them, how he would curse at them, do one coach out of practice. I mean, that kind of stuff is it, – it, it always would come back to haunt him. Now, UCLA is a whole different thing because, remember, to a certain extent, Brian Kelly was the same way. Brian oh, Kelly was a very type A, always yelling, always getting on people, always cursing his staff out, his, his players out. He tried that at, at, at Notre Dame. And he, the, the chancellor spoke the next day, and you haven't seen him say that since. <laughs> I saw Brian Kelly yeah. one time yell at a, a manager, like not a not an assistant, a manager for like seven minutes for being a half a yard off on where something was supposed to be placed. Yes. And Mick, Mick was the same way. That was their personality. But you, you're right. Yes. It, it'll be different at UCLA. But it'll uh, be different because they will turn up. They love. They love the new coach. But the tradition is almost like any other, other than Duke, and maybe Kentucky. Yeah. But when it comes to the expectations, they will cut you off. Braun went to three Final Fours in eleven years. In seven years. And they got rid of him because he was all defense and he was very limited offensively and he brought all this talent in and they were like, No, we should have had us a title by then. Right. And they bring in they bring in Alfred who's all offense and he goes to five sweet sixteens in seven years. And they get rid of him because he can't do <laughs> no defense. Is so it 
college sports is a fun world, isn't it? Doesn't coaching sound fun, Terry? <laughs> All right, let's let's get to the team because I know I know you've got some thoughts. You've been you've been around and, and you've had your eye on things and your ear to the ground as you get ready to broadcast the season. Um, Jared Cumberland was out for a little while. He had a minor procedure on his foot. It, it, I know people are freaked out about it because as soon as you hear or there were pictures of him with the boot on, <clears throat> whatever the case may be. Uh, don't worry, Bearcat fans. Jaron's fine. But what have you heard? What have you seen about Jaron since he's returned to practice? I know they're trying to get him into the game shape that he needs to be in. But from the the one practice I was at and and from what I've heard, you put Jaron on a court with the basketball in his hands, he's going to be fine. I mean, there's a reason he's being mentioned as a first-team All-American. Well, he can flat out go. And before it's all going to go down, he'll probably go down as the second all-time leading scorer at UC. I mean, this guy, can he can score with the best of them. Here's the issue. John Brennan takes practice serious, whereas Mick turned his other cheek <laughs> when it came to, to, to Cumberland. He would let Cumberland get away with certain things because certain coaches – coach their superstars differently certain times sometimes you don't want to pick your battles i mean you have to pick your battles in, in terms of how you're going to coach somebody are you going to come into the gym and knowing that jaron will give you 25 to 30 if you run stuff through him and he will force his will because he's a winner he will force his will and try to win a game for you so do you really want to get upset because in practice he threw a bad pass or he did something else I've seen Jaron throw a pass to Kane Broom. It goes over Kane Broom's head out of bounds. And Coach Cronin yelled at Kane Broom. <laughs> it does it all the time. You know, you should have been in a different position. You should never talk to Jaron. And so Jaron never got touched. And the players knew this. And now you got a new coach coming in, and he is not like that. No, he treats them all with the equal responsibility that you are a basketball player and there's two sides of the floor. You're going to hustle on defense. You're going to be where you are supposed to be defensively because you're not going to hang your teammates out to dry because they're the ones that are going to be screening for you and, and passing you the ball and doing all this other stuff on the offensive end. So be accountable defensively. But Jaron just doesn't like practice. I mean, it's like Allen Iverson thing. He'll practice, but he's not going to give you the same game-level intensity in practice that he'll do against Houston or Wichita State. Meanwhile, some of the other players are really going hard because it's, they're, they're trying to earn playing time. Jaron's already been through the wars. He's already been conference player of the year. He already knows how to get his buckets. But it, would drive, it just drives Coach crazy, Brandon crazy, when he sees Jaron break the offense and start going one-on-one, -on -one. even if Jaron is scoring. He's going to have to live with some of that come conference play because, yeah, we may shock some people, but after about five, six, seven to ten games, when we start getting the league play, there's a book out on UC, you know, how to beat us. Everybody's going to have it in league, especially the first time around in league. Everybody's going to say, okay, they press, they do this. Pretty soon you're just going to have to be able to go, okay, yes, the offense goes from left to right. Yes, we're going to get better as the year goes on. But, man, it feels good to have that guy named Jared that they can give you 25 to 30 on any given night against the best of defenses. Houston was one of the best defenses in the country last year in the country, top 10 defense in the country, and he absolutely torched them because Cronin said, let's put everybody on the wing, 
put Jaron in the high post, and let's give the ball to Jaron. And when they gave the ball to Jaron, Jaron just has this ability. He, he, he thinks he is the best player in the gym, period. He doesn't talk. Right. Like, look, he, don't, he, won't, he, won't, he won't hear it from out. That's right. the thing about Jaron. He doesn't talk. When people, when people, when Houston starts talking trash, like Jerome and all these guys, and Corey Davis, when they start talking trash to him, he'll just say okay, or he'll start shaking his head up and down, and his energy level just skyrockets from 85 to 110, and all of a sudden he's getting and ones, he's going to the hole, he's in the fast break, and then he'll just look at you. He won't say nothing. He'll just stare at you. But if looks can kill. <laughs> right. It's the AK-47 right at you because he just he's just that type of guy. So the management of personalities is going to be John's biggest uh, thing he's going to have to work with because he's coming back and you're inherited. If he was coming back with a bad team and he had to build from scratch, great, because he, he's done a great job adding talent. But he's coming back with Trey Scott, one of the most versatile players in the conference, and you have Keith, one of the most budding stars, a budding star in the conference, but Jaron Cumberland, the alpha in the conference. So you have the alpha coming back saying, you know what, I don't know if I want to go hard today. I'll just do enough. And that's enough to get the red team on the line or whatever team Jaron's on. If Jaron's not in position, coach says on the line. He won't call Jaron's name out. He won't say, he'll just say on the line. And everybody will know, but he treats them fair. Because if he can get Jaron, the first thing Popovich used to always say, if he can yell at Tim Duncan, he can yell at anybody. Mm-hmm. So he would, you know, confront Tim Duncan in front of the team in the huddle, and Duncan would go sit on the scores table because he couldn't stand it. Because he was like, that's not my fault. And Popovich would say, I don't care if it's not your fault. You're the leader of the team. You didn't say nothing. So I'm going to get on you. And that's the thing that Jaron is going to have to adjust to is that to whom much is given, much is required. If you're going to be the leader of the team, if you're going to be an NBA draft pick and talk about being a first-team All-American and leading your team to the promised land, you're going to be able to. You're going to have to take some of the stuff that John Brennan's dishing out because John's not going to change his style for a guy who's only going to be around here for the next four or five months. You mentioned Trey Scott and his versatility. What type of senior season do you think Trey is in for? Because I, I think he's. He's in position with his attitude and the way he has adjusted to the new coach and the new system. He's in position to have an excellent senior year uh, to cap off a really good career as a Bearcat. Since John has taken over the program and all the drills that they've run, all the practices they've had, he has only taken one rep off. Not one practice. One rep, meaning they go down the floor one time, he's out of the game, he comes right back in. He hasn't missed a drill. When it comes to sprints, he's trying to win the sprints. When it comes to doing drills or or, or running up and down, doing fast break drills, he's running, he's shooting, he's staying after getting shots up, he's coming early getting shots up. He has totally bought in. When you talk to any of the staff, they're so pleased with Trey. One of the coaches said, when Trey is done, this is uh, Craig Hazley, the director of basketball ops. He said when he's done, he can ask me for anything. He can ask us as a staff 
for anything, and we would try to go out of our way to help him if he needed a job and whatever because he is so totally bought in to what it is that we're trying to do. His leadership speaks volumes because when you have seniors that return, and seniors can cause a mutiny. You know, if they don't like the new coach and they're talented, they can cause a mutiny. Instead, Trey has been the vocal leader. Trey is the one running up and down the floor calling guys, telling guys where they're supposed to be defensively. He's in the back of the defense being the free safety, seeing the whole field, seeing the court in this aspect, and telling people where they're supposed to be, telling the young players how to make those cuts. They have these shooting drills. um, And in these shooting drills, they'll put a cone – on both sides of, let's just say they put a cone at the elbow of the free throw line and the cone at the other elbow. So the top of the key, you go from cone to cone. It's a five-minute shooting drill. You have to make 50 threes in this five-minute shooting drill. Now, Trevor Moore has made upwards of 65. I think the record was 72. He said he had it at NKU. And then Trevor, like, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. So he's been getting closer until he hurt his foot. But – if you get over 50 consistently, then in the games, that equates to about 40% from the field from three. So John says, if you are making 50 free throws, in fi- uh, 50 three-pointers in five minutes consistently, and that ball comes to you on the perimeter and you don't shoot it, you are hurting your team. Trey has been consistently at about 53 now. He's been coming before class, after class. I mean, he'll call the coach. Coach will be in the office. He'll say, Coach, can I get some shots up? They'll be in the gym. He will get shot after shot after shot. Like, he he really, really wants to add that part of his game because when he's in the game and he's open, he doesn't want to think about where's Jaron, where's this. He's going to think about, you know, I'm a viable option. I'll put the work in. I'm going to shoot it. You saw that in about the last three or four games in the conference tournament, last couple games of the regular season, he really started to look for his offense. He even did that in the game against Iowa. He had like 14 points, but he really started being aggressive offensively. Well, it's starting to come together now. He's putting the work in to shoot, to do all the other things. He's always been a terrific hustler. He will rebound better. He's got to get better at rebounding. He will get better at playing post-defense and quit diving on the floor for loose ball. You know, when, when, when guys try to hit you pass, he dives on the floor trying to steal it, and they don't get it. In the case of Iowa, where he gave up two dunks because he's diving on the floor. His attitude is just, if you can package that and give it to everybody out there, like Jeremiah uh, like Davenport, his attitude is great. Trey's attitude is just tremendous. But more importantly than his attitude, his work ethic should be modeled, and it will be. And and the coaches see that because of his work ethic, they want to reward him. One guy that I think that, that from what I've seen and what I've heard has been close to uh, what Trey has provided in terms of effort and attitude uh, is not a returning guy. It's a newcomer, but it's a grad transfer, and that's Chris McNeil. And it, it, he won't say it. I asked him if, if he's at his fifth stop in five years. He's had multiple coaching changes. He's had things go wrong. And I think he's trying to prove something in his final year that he belonged at this level. But he's another guy right with Trey, I think. He tries to win every sprint. He tries to be a leader on the floor. What is the feel you've gotten from Chris McNeil as you've seen him play? 
Chris McNeil's probably been the best player in practice so far, him and Javen Cumberland. Uh, Chris McNeil has been lights out as a shooter. He has been picking up full court. He is everything that the coach has asked him to do is, yes, sir, I got you. He is, he's, he's, he, the, the possibilities and the opportunities are, are all there. I mean, he's out of opportunities. This is it. And so he wants to make the most out of it. And so when you talk about winning sprints, um, staying late to shoot, coming early to shoot, it's infectious. They see Trey, Scott, staying late, coming early. He starts coming early and staying late. But more importantly, he just has a feel for the game. You know, all that year, whether you played or not, whether you, you know, you were bouncing around from coach to coach. I was at four different universities, you know, four different schools before, you know, I, I ended up graduating. But some people, sometimes it's just about, it comes to just finding your fit. And I think at Cincinnati, he's very comfortable. All the resources are here. He felt like he just landed in the perfect system. Sometimes you can have the right players. Like I think Kane Broom was one year away. If he were the red shirted, being in this system, oh my goodness. The way they want to press and move the ball and push and, and shoot threes and all that. Some people were just systems sometimes help players to become better than what they really are. And sometimes systems can hurt players from becoming all that they should be because the system holds them back. But I think when you look at McNeil, man, McNeil is the real deal. That should be his name, real deal McNeil. I told <laughs> him. see if we can get that I told him. Yeah, I told him. I said, you need to go and, and uh, YouTube Mookie Blaylock. And he was like, who's that? I said, come on, man. I said, he played in the land of killers, you know, with, 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 with Harper and uh, Jordan. Like, it was these all-world uh, players, Reggie Miller and all that. But yet, he was the most feared defensive guard in the NBA. He would get three steals a game, still go out and give you 20, still get you six, seven assists. But he would, you know, pick you up full court and make it tough for your life. Even if as a help defender, he was everywhere defensively. And I said, you've got to do that. You've got to be the, spe the tip of the spear for this, for, this, uh, for this university and this team. He goes, okay, I'm going to do it. And so when I asked him again the other day, he goes, yeah, I looked it up. I looked it up. Yeah, he was cold. He was cold. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's you, man. I said, take no matter what you watch. Don't watch. When you're an athlete, you can't watch for entertainment value. You have to, when you're watching a game, you've got to steal something. You've got to see something that you like. And then put it in your game. You got to go work on it, and so that's exactly what he did. You mentioned Javen Cumberland. Uh, I will say he is—he has been far more than a shooter, from what I've yeah. seen. But I will also say, holy cow, can that kid shoot? Like, <laughs> it is compact. It is quick. It is repeatable. It is everything you look for in a jump shot. Is your take similar? Well, I was doing my research on him before I interviewed him Tuesday for Bearcats Insider. Uh, that, that will air, I believe, next Wednesday or Thursday. We will do another uh, taping in the studio on Tuesday. But watching him and that ball goes off his hand is quick. Even when he's coming around to the top of the key from, from left to right, and he does that little left-right, left foot, right foot tap, Shot goes up, and it's money. You know what? He, he was 
28th in the nation last year in three-point attempts at 273. Eight a game. He was 20- yeah, 22nd in the nation and makes 3.3 per game. He shot 69, with 69, 67 more three-pointers than Jaron, and Jaron shot a lot, but Jaron, you know, was known for just getting buckets going to the hole. But he also made 30 more than Jaron. So we look at Jaron. Jaron and Justin Jennifer were at the top of the conference several times, shooting 40-plus percent from three um, before he began to start simmering down right about the last five, six games of the season. And this guy – at 39.9%, 40% he's shooting from downtown, which means that those seem like low percentages, but in three-point shooting, those are tremendous percentages, especially if you're the number one guy on your team, you're receiving double teams, you're coming off that high post on the ball screen, they're hedging you, they're trying to you know, flush you back, push you back, make you retreat dribble so the guard can come back and pick up and that defender can get back to the high post guy. They're doing all these tricks against you, and yet he's still putting it up. John, when, when he played NKU, they had all kind of stuff of how they were going to stop this cat. And he still gave him 27 points, and he hit seven threes against John Brennan, NKU North team. So when you, when you look at his shooting, picture the floor being spaced, and picture – Jaron Cumberland coming off that high post screen. He's getting to the hole going downhill, and then defenders are now sliding in the position like they would do last year, and he would kick it out. Well, last year, you know, it would be kicked out, and somebody would hold it. Sometimes it would go up, unless it was Justin Jennifer. Justin was a sure shot. But now he's got three other guys on the perimeter that are knockdown shooters that he can kick it out to. And he's going to be looking for his cousin. And his cousin, I told Jaron, I said, Jaron, you can very easily average seven assists a game this year. Yeah. And he's just like, what do you mean? I said, now when, you, when, you have, when you're going to the hole, you don't have to force shots. When you kick it out, it's not going to non-shooters. They're not even probably going to give you the ball back. When that ball gets kicked out, it's going up, and it's got a great chance of going in because the guys that you're kicking it to. And he's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You can get two or three assists just giving it to your cousin. So I asked Jared, I asked Javen, I said, hey, uh, I asked this on Bearcat Insider, and you'll see it. I said, look, man, 10 seconds to go. We're down by two. You got the ball in your hands. You got the returning player of the year, your cousin, calling for the ball, but yet you've hit five or six threes already. <laughs> Who's taking this last shot? And he just looked at He goes, probably me. He said, now, I might, he said, I might pass him the ball, <laughs> if he, you know, if it's open or whatever. But I'm confident enough where I think I'm going to knock down the shot. Now, that's the kind of leadership that I'm talking about. Everybody doesn't have to acquiesce to, to Cumberland and his demands, always wanting the ball and all that stuff, because it, it can get, he can become ball dominant because he believes the best chance for you guys to win or the Bearcats to win is for his hands to be on the ball. Well, he's got three other guys now on the perimeter that all think that. McNeil thinks that. He thinks that. Uh, you know, and then Jeremiah Davis, uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah Davenport, when he gets back. I mean, all these guys think that they can be the man. We already have one man, <laughs> but right. all of them have right. the confidence to like, no, just give me some time in this system. Let me work and see what I can do. And the thing about John Brandon, John doesn't care if you're a freshman or a senior. 
you're a Division One athlete. He recruited you. So because he recruited you, he expects you to go in there and do your job. He's not going to say, oh, he's a freshman. Don't worry about him. Or he's young. You never hear that come out of John's mouth. John is like, no, a baller is a baller. If you can get the system down that I'm teaching you, if you can get the footwork down, now sometimes it may take you a year or so to get that stuff down or to believe that you can do it, but John is coming in right now and saying, look, no, there's space and opportunity here. I don't care if you're just now getting off uh, uh, the plane coming from junior college, coming from high school, or if you're a, a, a grad transfer. There's opportunity here. If you can play, I'm going to play the people that give me the chance to win. So the reason I focused on these, the, the particular guys that I did, and Keith Williams is included in this group very much as well, who you mentioned earlier, but a lot of the, the uncertainty going into this season is always centered around how long does it take to adjust to a new system? And that is obviously going to be a question here because it is such a drastic change from the system that was here to the system that's being implemented now. But when I had the chance to see practice, I was really concerned about that aspect. How is this team going to go from grind it out to up-tempo in an offseason? And I walked out of that practice thinking they've got leadership. It might not be in the way that you expect because of the grad transfers and because of the way that the roster was constructed kind of on the fly. But the more you watch that, the more I watch that team practice and you were down there with me and we talked about this, the more I thought they've got guys that can, that can make this transition smoother than I was thinking it might be. And that is, because Jaron is so talented, because Trey is such a leader, because Keith gives them a different element on the wing than anybody else that they have, because Javen is such a solid player that also is a high-level shooter, because Chris McNeil just kind of comes off as a dog to me, a guy that you know, mm-hmm. when I think when I watch Chris McNeil, you know the first thing I think of Bearcat. Yeah, and. Is, is that the impression that you've gotten as well, that this is a team that should be able to adapt and adjust to this system on the fly because they're going to have a bunch of older guys that are bought in and looking to end their career on a high note? Absolutely. If this entire team was returning from last year, it would be difficult to implement your system because they're just used to it. You only have a handful of guys that you're trying to pull stuff out of and put stuff into. The rest of them, you're just trying to input. You're trying to input new principles, new practices. This is how we do it on this level. They don't have to unlearn anything. They're coming in already and with the mindset of, look, all I have to do is learn what the coach wants me to do, go hard, listen, and I'm getting some playing time because he recruited me because I can shoot. He recruited me because I can defend. He recruited me because I can rebound. He recruited them for some reason. So I tell guys, I say, think about why you're here and why you get in the game. You're not getting in the game. This is not CYO basketball where you're getting in the game because you're the 12th guy and you have to play. (laughs) Your parents gave $10 to the booster club and you've been to practice all week, so you have to play. No. When he puts you in the game, it's because you do something. You bring something to the table. And because of that, when you're in the game, have the confidence to go out there and do it. 
Like, he's got guards that can push it. I mean, Chris McNeil pushes the ball. We haven't even seen Jeremiah Davenport, but he has just been a bundle of energy on the sidelines. Keith is still trying to make that transition to understanding what it is the coach really wants. But Keith is more of a gamer. He'll try it. Sometimes he's out of position, and, and the coaches are really working with him. But at the same time, he changed his jump shot. It looks much better. He's going to give himself a chance to actually be a perimeter player uh, against the zone defense. Uh, but he is so athletic. He can do what nobody else on our team can do athletically. And, you know, Micah Adams-Woods, is, he was out with a little sickness. We haven't even talked about Trevor Moore. Right. Trevor Moore yeah. has been out with that boot. We had partial tear in his Achilles. He was back at practice yesterday walking around. He was shooting around in, in practice. He says he's got two more weeks. So that means he's, you know, two more weeks before he's actually going to get on the court. And he's going to actually start getting ready. He says he's going to be out for the Ohio State game. But that's another lights-out shooter with experience that he's not going to be afraid to shoot this year. He's not going to have somebody say he's the best shooter I've ever recruited and then never let him shoot. This guy, if it's coming to him, the coach is going to expect him to let it fly. And he's not going to take him out because he's shooting too much. He's going to take him out because he's not shooting. So when it comes down to it, we're two weeks away from the season – there's a lot to unfold. There's a lot to play out. There's a lot of storylines that will develop. How good can this team be in 2019-2020? Well, we're going to get tested a lot. You know, Xavier is ranked. Um, Iowa's going to be good. Tennessee is going to be really good. Um, Ohio State's going to be good. You know, we're going to re- – Memphis and Houston. So the schedule is going to test your 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 work. Here's what I'm confident in. The Cats are putting in the work to be great, not to be good, to be great. They're putting in the little things, the little nuances, the whistle being blown because the guy is one foot out of the position that he's supposed to be in, which represents a charge or a block. Um, They have the talent. The talent's got to mature. The talent's got to get to the point where they don't see themselves as freshmen. They don't see themselves as transfers. They see themselves as Bearcats. And if you step on that floor, the energy. So here's the thing. So if you can get some of those early games out, we start on the road, which could be a great thing because you can get some of that nervous energy out. You can rely on Cumberland and and Trey to do some things and and Javen to sort of help you guys get out of that atmosphere. But it's not like Ohio State will be rocking unless we have a bunch of Cincinnati fans up there, which I think we will. If we started the season at Xavier or at Memphis or at Houston, that would be a concern. But we're going to start on the road of Ohio State. It's, it's, we're going to have a you know, pretty partial crowd there. But these guys will be ready. And I think this team, I don't know about record-wise, if we'll ink out some of the wins that we got over the years with Cronin, like you know, being 30-5 and five and 32-4 and four and all that. That's great. But when you don't advance in the tournament, nobody really remembers those great years that Gary Clark and, and Cumberland and all those guys and Jacob Evans provided and Kyle Washington. Yes, they, they'll, they'll, you know, we'll go back 10 years from now. We'll have reunions. But people want to remember how we advance in the tournament. And this is what makes this team so intriguing is that he doesn't want to be relying on one person, although one person could lead us but that one person is going to lead us because everybody else is going to be great at what they do. 
And if he's got knockdown shooters on the perimeter, if he's got rim protectors in the, in the, in the front line, if he's got guys that can shoot the passing lanes and run the floor with speed and share the ball, it's going to be a fun brand of basketball to watch. It's going to have the fans rocking and rolling because you're going to see – I saw yesterday in practice, I saw more dunks in practice than I've seen all year long with the Bearcats last year. I mean, they throw at the rim. Those guys get it on the fast break. I mean, they are looking to make a statement. They feel like they've got something to prove because they feel like the horse who's finally had the stable opened up and the, and the, and the jockey says, come on, let's, let's run, let's stretch those legs. And the coach is a former baller. And so when I ask him – about little things like doghouse and, you know, who's going to be in the doghouse. And he goes, I don't believe in that stuff. He says, I was a former player, and I know I didn't like to be messed with when I was a player. So I just, I tell them what I want. Either they're going to do it or they're not. But I don't have a doghouse. The minute they start doing it, they can play. If they don't, then I'll put somebody else in, but he doesn't have a doghouse. Like, he doesn't believe in all these things, these cliches that you hear in, in coaching. He's just a different guy. John's like, no, I'm here to win. I'm a former player. Follow the system, but go out there and have the freedom to play. All right, man. Well, it's going to be a lot of fun. I will catch you. Is it November 1st is the exhibition game? Thomas? Uh, oh, Halloween. Uh, no, it's 31st. Halloween, yeah. Yeah, it's Halloween. So I will catch you at Fifth Third Arena for this team's uh, dress rehearsal, if you will. <clears throat> I appreciate absolutely. you coming on. I know all the fans absolutely appreciate all the insight. It has been a fantastic jam-packed information information filled that's a mouthful show and uh i just want to say i appreciate you taking out some time on your wednesday night for us my brother and uh it was greatly appreciated and it was an awesome uh, an awesome show with a lot of great information awesome brother we'll do it again soon all right everybody that is terry nelson much appreciated to have him come on we will be back uh with some football talk and some basketball talk we'll do a little bit, bit of both next week as we gear towards that season opener one week from tonight, or two weeks from tonight, excuse me, up in Columbus. I'm Chad Brendel. He was our special guest, Terry Nelson. We'll see you next time. It's the BCJ Podcast on BearcatJournal.com.